So when you bring two subwoofers together and you pass the same voltage through it, when they're in phase, they'll put out a greater output. And so this same thing happens with humans, and I call it sympathetic resonance. So when people are in harmonic resonance with each other, even though their work input doesn't require any more energy, the output is greater. So when you have a community that's around a container of an event that like loves and enjoys being together and creating together, it infuses that vibration into the container. Hi, this is Peter Marks. Welcome to Rhythm Nation. We are an Oregon-based nonprofit that believes music communities can create change. On today's show, I spoke with Minaj Matthew, an electronic music promoter who has been throwing raves in Portland for literally 30 years. Minaj and I have been in touch a lot recently as we're planning a Rhythm Nation event together on November 20th at his venue in Portland, Epicenter. As we've been talking through the event, it became clear that Minaj's approach to putting on events is deeply personal to the point that it borders on spiritual. So I wanted to get the full story on his views on dance music communities as I think it relates so strongly to the community organizing we do at Rhythm Nation. It happens to include some great stories about Portland's very first raves in the early 1990s, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Before we get started, I want to briefly introduce myself and the nonprofit organization I lead to our new listeners on KBU and elsewhere. Again, my name is Peter Marks, and I'm a political technology professional and a former staffer of the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign. But I got my start in community organizing by promoting raves in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. My campaign work in rural areas of the state informs my statewide outlook on organizing and advocacy. And in July of 2020, I started the Rhythm Nation podcast to explore the intersection of music and activism to help uncover how music inspires community leadership. Since then, the effort has expanded into a 100-person-plus organizing effort, live music events, and now a full-fledged advocacy organization. Our organization is powered by our members who drive the decisions for advancing our core issues, which include transitioning Oregon to a single-payer healthcare system, identifying and endorsing aligned congressional candidates in the upcoming coming 2022 midterm elections, uh, honoring the BIPOC origins of dance music and members of our community by standing up against white supremacist movements in Oregon, and also credibly advocating for criminal justice reform, which includes smarter drug policy and an emphasis on harm reduction techniques. That last issue is actually the focus of the upcoming event I mentioned on November 20th that Minaj is hosting at his menu epicenter. It's headlined by New York DJ Kiman Foxman, and it features speakers from Dance Safe and Oregon Measure 110. Some background on this event, those of us who have lived our lives on the dance floor know the potent combination of music and dance has the power to unleash an unstoppable force of community, unity, and freedom. From the oppressed, to the underground, to the masses, to the bourgeoisie, music speaks to us all. However, some dance floors are much more heavily policed than others, which is something we talk about in this episode. Whether it's targeting jazz musicians during the Harlem Renaissance, LGBTQ plus dance clubs in the 1970s, or now President Joe Biden's Reducing Americans' Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act, or the RAVE Act, in 2003, 
our government has a history of using drug and alcohol policy as a means of breaking up dance music communities it deems morally objectionable. Rhythm Nation is fighting back. Last year, we organized Oregon's dance music community to help pass Measure 110, our great nation's first drug decriminalization bill. And even though that bill was passed and became the law this February, the work has not stopped. The rest of the country is watching Oregon, and now we must use this chance to usher in a new era of justice and drug policy and demonstrate what that can look like to the rest of the nation. We can be a model for the rest of the country to follow if we can do so safely, which is why we're going to be focusing this event on uh, harm reduction techniques and getting help. So to learn more about this event, our issues, our podcast, and becoming a member with voting privileges, visit the Rhythm Nation website at rhythmnation.us or our social media handles at Rhythm Nation PDX on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, let's hear from Minaj about the story that brought him to work with Rhythm Nation. Well, Minaj, thank you so much for being here. It's great to actually like catch up with you outside of a party environment and actually like get to hear your story. Yeah, it's an honor to be here and I'm happy to share my, my interesting adventure. Yeah, yeah. So, so how did you, uh, how did you get started with dance music, and what was your first foray into this whole world? I mean, I think a lot of it was uh, around my own personal like childhood troubles. My family, I used to like, you know, when I was in my teens, um, would sneak away and um, go down to the local uh, dance club with my friends. And there used to be a, a club in town called the Plaza. And then that eventually closed and it moved over to it and create, there was a new club in town that became uh, Scoochies. And, and these were like, I just fell in love with dancing and electronic music. Where was this? Was this in This is in Portland. This is in Portland. Yeah. So you grew up in Portland? Yeah, pretty area. much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that was in the, that was in the, you know, mid eighties. Yeah. So it was, so I was like, I, dancing was my thing. You know, I, I had close friendships during that period of time and we would you know we started throwing like house parties and the house parties became too big to be in houses and so we started doing them in venues and in the venues we would always have like either um like an 80s classic dj that would come from the local club or we'd have a band that played and the parties just got too big like by the time i was 22 like we were you know it was over a thousand people coming and it was like 15 kegs of beer and we weren't really like carding people and you know I was like f- f- about to finish my bachelor's degree and I was going to do my master's so I felt like hey I, I don't really think I want to stay in this because you know it's just like not the direction I'm going and then I had a you know my I had one of my partners in doing these events one of my close friends he was dating a model girlfriend that would fly him out to LA and some other exotic places and he'd come back with stories of the the rave stuff that was happening in the early eighties and, and he was like, We gotta do these parties and all this stuff and I was like, I'm I'm not into it. I'm I'm moving away from it. So but I had you know, I had a couple of like life changing experiences. I I um in nineteen spring break of nineteen ninety I went on a road trip with four friends. We went down to San Francisco and then to LA and San Francisco was like, for some reason that weekend it wasn't really popping. We went to a, a club called Townsend. It was like very uneventful. 
then we continued down the coast and went down to LA. And one of our close friends from Portland had moved down to LA to do lighting and he was doing lighting at all the rave parties. And we met him down there and he got us into this rave event uh, in, yeah, you know, spring break of 1990. It was in a roller skating rink um, and with like probably like five, 6,000 people. And so I get in there and it was like really interesting because I, you know, it looked like a very big version of kind of what we were doing, you know, um, and the music was a little bit more cutting edge than the stuff that was we were playing. But, you know, like a lot of the 80s stuff had like, you know, the 80s classics and kind of an in- industrial kind of component and the industrial sounding dance music had kind of crossover to what what was happening here. Like it was kind of like had this feeling of this early techno kind of rave sound that was, was happening. And I, I had a, an experience there, you know, that, uh, you know, in, in an altered state, uh, that occurred in which I found myself just, you know, I've never been to LA before with my four friends. I'm having the time of my life. My friends want to leave. I tell them to go without me, just giving me an address, which is crazy because we didn't have any cell phones back then. Or it was just like, it was kind of a ludicrous moment. But I was just like, no, I want to stay. I want to, you know, finish this out. So they take off without me. And I just dance and I dance and I dance. And it's like, everything's like, all all the windows are blocked out. So you have no sense of time. And so at some point in time, the music ends. And I'm like, why are you like, why are you guys shutting down and all this stuff? And they're like, dude, it's like 10 o'clock in the, in you know, in the morning. And, and they're like, I was just like, that's not true, because I had gone, I had gotten there at like one, and it did not feel like that much time had elapsed. And they're like, open the doors. So I opened the doors, I pushed them open, and I was like completely shocked to experience that it was a hot, LA morning, you know. And I was like, whoa. It was it was like my mind I think was just kind of going through this like wh- what just happened you know this was I, I feel like I was in some kind of like displaced time warp and um, so I ended up helping the lighting guys break down and everything and then they gave me a ride back to my friends and so I you know on the way back I just you know prior to that like you know my friends were all like we should get a warehouse and do these ray parties and blah 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 and I was like you know no but like when I came back I was like let's do it you know we like you know, got on, got on it. And by, by, you know, November 30th, 1991, we did our first rave party in our own warehouse. We rented a warehouse in, uh, 26th and Schiller in Southeast Schiller. My friend who owned a, like a limo company had like rented it with the auspices of being where he parks his cars, which he did, but then he moved the cars out and we could throw a rave party. Um, Were you aware of any raves in Portland happening before this time in 1991? You know, it wasn't really on my radar, but there had been. There was a guy named Rich Rich Sahaley who had been doing parties down in L.A. and San Diego. He was kind of a notorious individual. Like, it was all break-ins down in that particular area. And so, and he had, like, burned some bridges down in the L.A. area. So I think he was kind of in some ways fleeing and he was on, like, the Vancouver market, Vancouver, B.C. market was, like, blowing up. So he was on his way to do parties up in in Vancouver, B.C., and his car broke down, apparently, in Portland. And so he went to the local, there's a place called Turntable Mary's, which was where Brad Backel uh, worked and... Um, 
and um, and he, Rich Haley, I think, had connected with Brad, and then and Mike Mike Stevens was like the like the the primary DJ at the Scoochies nightclub, and um, and I think uh, uh, Eric Hedford, who you know was the drummer for the Dandy Warhols, was also um, like he was uh, I think involved with DJing around then. So they they. Oh, actually, yeah, maybe Eric. I think maybe came later. There was Mark. Mark Brody was in, involved with it. So essentially, Rich had connected with the three of them, and they and they had started started this production company called Four, Three Fallen Stars or Four Fallen Stars or something like that. And they were doing these love parties, which were total break-ins. And that was the that was the only thing we had heard that preceded that. That was in in our vein. We kind of did it in a different way, where we actually got a lease on a space and we're kind of doing it legitimately we had the space for a period of time we brought in all of our artist friends so one of our friends made a mural of michelangelo's david and 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 beautiful he was a very talented artist with like like welding mask and where they were touching the condom (laughs) just you know crazy stuff my friend made like a huge mobile we had like 40 foot ceiling so he made this huge mobile that was above the dance floor and it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was a wildly, you know, we took, we just had our version of, of what a rave looked like. Cause we didn't have a whole lot of experience. I had just had that one experience at that event, but it was, you know, back then it was, it was open format. Like nobody had any ideas of what it was supposed to be like. So you could just make it up. Um, yeah. So November 30th, 1991, we did our first event and we pissed off every nightclub in Portland, essentially, because we did 21 over and we did our first party. I think we did six or 800 people. Wow. Your very first one. Yeah. So, so people, did you market it as a rave? Like how, how did yeah, you, it, was how a, did... it was actually, and it turned out to be like, not a great at like, like I could, you know, we called it party anyway. You want to with a big E even it's funny because there was this like, you know, it, it my partner, uh, Brian Graham was, you know, he was really pushed for these kind of, you know, icon, you know, uh, icons that were related with the rave scene. That, but it made us look like we were drug dealers when we weren't because we didn't really have an E or have access to E. And we got, we actually, the nightclubs, local nightclubs actually were able to uh, kind of attack us with the city, p- trying to point us to to you know to being drug dealers when we weren't um essentially because we had put this e on the thing and it was crazy like after that party we got pulled in front of the city to talk to the licensing bureau the olcc the vice squad uh, it was just a it was a fucking crazy thing and they were like it was so funny because and especially there was this vice squad officer named chuck bolliger and he had had determined that we were drug dealers which was so hilarious because that was not the case. I mean, we had 15 kegs of beer at our parties and it was like, I think we was like, we charged $10 all you could drink or something like that. You know, maybe it was 20. I don't know. I can't remember. But but it was just, it was, it was not the thing. But he, after that thing, had made it his rest of his career to try to thwart us. So he started like, like every event afterward, they pulled our license so that we couldn't do any more like large parties at the space. When we tried to rent other venues, they would find out about that are trying to rent it, and then they would go to the venue and then threaten them to like lose their liquor license. So those places would like pull, pull, and so we were like getting into this situation where we suddenly 
we had this big hit on our hands and then we couldn't really follow up with a subsequent event because they were really trying to go after all these spaces. And so, so, so it seems like the, the excitement and enthusiasm for like raves was there, but the authorities had, you know, had no interest in having anything of the sort happening in Portland. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah, for sure. And, and largely I think this particular Chuck Bolliger guy had like got, you know, he was probably reading stories about other places and thought that, you know, this was happening and made this point that this was going to, was going to stop this thing. And, which is interesting because, you know, in every case that I look at with regards to the, the government trying to thwart people's desire to gather and dance, it's always turned into a backfire in some ways. There's always something that happens that, is, that they could not calculate that, that arises from it. In this particular case, we found an ally with um, um, a person named Ali who, who happened to have, like, uh, run a cl- nightclub downtown on several nightclubs downtown, but this one particular one was called uh, Upfront FX, right oh, on the waterfront. I, I went to Upfront and like right for high school, yeah, in like two thousand or so, yeah. Yeah, well, so we did our first. I think we we started we started a thirty Thursday night club there that we ran for probably like three years. It was like two to three hundred people every Thursday for for forever. Um, and I think we started like probably in ni- like 1992, something like that. And I think we ran it till like 1995. But but it was interesting because this guy Chuck Bolliger did continue to try to thwart us for a long time. And then I think he got like either got removed from the force or demoted or moved out. But he was like like he just disappeared in the wow. equation. So so like even though you you all had you know made peace with like the bar industry by using like their venues, their licensed venues, like this force in the police just he, he, was intent on like, he was intent on it. But he, but the thing is when we actually moved into the upfront FX, it was a very established, uh, business, um, that with a lot of financial backing behind it. And Ali was like completely in support of it, us. And we were like bringing tons of people on the Thursday night, you know, two to 300 people, at the venue every Thursday for three years. It's like, you know, from a club management standpoint, ownership standpoint, they loved us, you know. So we were we were able to, like, really establish ourselves in the city in this particular character that was, like, all about thwarting us just, you know, faded away and disappeared. Uh, how much of how much of a, a visible LGBTQ plus presence was there in those times in the dance scene? I mean, you know, it was always there because, like, you know, when we were going to dance clubs in the 80s, we would be going to like, you know, um, uh, gosh, it's it's close. Like we would go to the city nightclub or we would go to Scoochies or we'd go to um, what's the club that used to be open right on Broadway in Northwest? It's closed now. Gosh, I forgot the name. My memory is like not stellar these days after 30 years of <laughs> being in the culture, remembering all the names and everything. But it was a, it was a very prominent uh, gay club right on, on Broadway that we would go to and dance. So there was a lot of, that was the kind of the beauty of like Portland and small towns as well. Whereas I think larger towns have more of a tendency to um, kind of uh, like um, fragment into their own kind of cliques. And the smaller market and scene, there's like much more like crossover. Like people are like, you know, dancing at the gay clubs and 
and people that are in the LGBT community are like coming over to the rave scene. And so I think there was a little bit, you know, there was a lot more of that kind of crossover. Same thing that was happening in other, other markets as well. What was your, your highlight as a promoter in the 90s? Like what was the, the best party that you put on? In that period. Well, I mean, I, I think I would say, first of all, the be- the thing I would like want to point to is it's something that happened in 1990, like after the initial one that kind of got me into doing the event. I went to an event in San Francisco that did something to me, like I like really changed me. I attended this event that was at the Warfield Theater, and then they shut that down and they moved everybody over to the CD Nights Club. And something happened there, like when, when it went from this like 3,000, 4,000 person rave to this kind of more intimate thing. And it was really in, incredible, like what happened, like suddenly, like there was all these new characters, people that were like showing up with bone necklaces and drums. And it was like da- Thomas, Danny and Garth and Adonis, I think that were DJing that night and the visuals. I mean, it was something happened for me, like, like I realized that was like another quantum personal jump in my own evolution. And I realized that the actual container of the event could be like really be cultivated to be like a transformational experience. And so, so after I got back from that event, then everything after that had become like the event itself had become my laboratory to experiment around what impacts transformation, what creates that kind of container for it. Um, and so, like, you know, then it became this, like, you know, three decades exploration for that. Huh. So, so tell me more about, like, how an event can be a transformative experience for, for people in, like, in the ideal scenario. Well, I mean, I mean, I think we have to, like, fundamentally look at what is, what is the nature of creation, you know? If we look at the, 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 the nature of existence, that everything is a combination of atomic particles— in very, you know, everything that we see in, in, in visible and invisible is a combination of atomic particles. And an atom is 99.9% empty space. So really, fundamentally, everything that, that exists is largely moving energy. But our minds have just become really gross, and so we see things as solid or, you know. And so then, then when you take that context and you apply it to, like, what we're doing in the container of an event space with regard to like amplifying lighting and sound and then like decorating and organizing a container and then allowing all these corporeal energetic bodies that is the human form to come gather and co-mingle in a particular way. Um, when, you, when you do all of these things and you do it with like a high level of volition and consideration for the attendee and, um, and you, you select the people that you bring musically together from that also from that space and that you the 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 um elements that you use allow you know, you know provide an increase you know a, a high and rarefied frequency you know like one of the things we'll talk about is like the the, the transformation of amplification through sound systems and and how people have re, redetermined how they look at sound and what that has done with regard to the context and also just like the production capacity musicians have been able to like explore with regards to playing with sound and their range that they that they have available to to themselves compared to what was happening in the early early 90s and then you know and also the lighting you know like what 
what happens when you're taking these type of aesthetics, uh, you know, this lighting aesthetic and applying it with the sound and visuals and then the decor. And you have all of this and you create a gestalt that has this power that when you walk in, it invokes inspiration, it invokes connection, it invokes hope. These things are all helpful in a world that's deeply broken. Do do you feel like a a lot of the folks who attend these events are looking for that transformational moment or, or is it some combination of that and just looking for like a escape or, or good time like what do you think drives people to yeah i mean i think if you if you don't you know i think right now it's it's you know it's a sad state of affairs in my opinion from for, in a lot of ways because as the as this has all grown people have seen it as a financial commodity and by and trying to commodify it and not really understanding its potential power a lot of what people experience is just really like a very like you know mediocre audio experience where you know uh, an artist gets up there and you know they're seeing you know, like playing playing a set or whatever but 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 they're not real there's not too many people that are invoking the gestalt of like the totality of the experience and preparing the container so that you know and so oftentimes like somebody that may be looking for entertain some people may be looking for entertainment and then they they happen to catch this particular event and they're like this is different this has power and this has been really well the container has been prepared and then they find themselves like you know, there's just they they love the party. You know, but they may not fully understand what just happened to them. But something, they feel inspired or joyful or light or you know these things happen. And then some people, you know, they've had events where they've been moved, and then they will seek out other events that have that type of thing. And so they start moving more into a current where they're like, oh, I want to go to these parties that like have a, a you know are impactful and so and then some people you know they're just like i want to rage it and party and you know they can go anywhere <laughs> they, they don't really they're maybe like in a state of mind that's like doesn't no, notice the refinement of things so they're just like ah wherever i can party i can go you know um so there's always in, in you know there's always a different wide range of, of things yeah, yeah that, that does make sense so so you hear you you, you say it like the, it's when all those things come together that the container you put in that combines like the the vibe of the the people who are, who are there and the music and the lighting um like when all when all things kind of kind of come together you can create that transformational experience in your mind that will show people that there is this whole other other like height of, of enjoying themselves is that is that about right yeah I mean, I, I mean, like I said, something happened to me and my life became an exploration about like what that is. And so as I kind of like worked in these different areas of refining my own events, I started noticing. Yeah, I, I can relate to that because I, I uh, for a long time, I feel like the, the community part was what was missing for me. You know, I, I, I've been going to, you know, raves and in Portland since like, yeah, about, about 20 years, since like the early 2000s. And, you know, I lived in California for a bit, went to stuff there, but never really felt like a part of, I, I didn't like know people at these events. I would just kind of go for like the headliner or whatever to see the music. And it wasn't until I moved back to, to Portland and gosh, like 2008 or so, um, that I was like, oh, wow, I actually like 
I'm starting to get to know people at these things because it's, it's a smaller community. I'm getting to know, know folks. And that's really kind of what, what brought me into it and made me want to you know, be, be a part of things. Can you talk to me a little bit about like that, the importance of like knowing the people there and like the friendships that you develop? Well, at, I mean, at I mean again, if you, if you really think about the gestalt of the container, right? It's, it's the, it's, it's, you know, so there's an interesting phenomenon that happens with sound, right? Uh, so when you bring two subwoofers together and you pass the same voltage through it, when they're in phase, they'll put out a greater output. And so this same thing happens with humans. And I call it sympathetic resonance. So when people are in harmonic resonance with each other, even though their work input doesn't require any more energy, the output is greater. So when you have a community that's around a container of an event that like loves and enjoys being together and creating together, it infuses that vibration into the container. So even though it's not, it's not something like why is grandma's apple pie so much better you know what i mean because there's magic in it because there's really there's there's this like quality and energy that's infused in it that's like it's not like discernible and like in a in a particular way but it, it's there and so when you have a community around something versus like a production company that just like is bringing this lighting company and that sound company and this you know and putting all these like it looks like the same thing because they're bringing elements that look like the same thing that it's different because the whole thing doesn't feel like a living organism. You know, it's missing the the crucial ingredients. So community is huge, part of the magic and the outcome. What do you feel like that community means to to people uh, who who find it through through music? Like like how is that? Have you seen that been harnessed positively? Well, I mean, if you think about like how I mean, I it's really hard to to look at the world that we live in. You know, uh, for, from from my vantage, you know. Like people are, you know, you know, we were tribal people, you know, that's the roots of who we were. We grew up in groups where we like shared things and ate meals together and danced together and created art and passed knowledge and, and wisdom. And, and we have like, we're the only animal that has a day job, you know, we like, like have people like spend all their lives just like working to make a little bit of money to like pay off these bills and you know, and, you know, and then, you know, people like are so like torn up and they're like, they do so much damage to, to their children. And, you know, and the rave scene was full of people, children that like came from broken homes. They were finding uh, a connection and hope and like friendship in ways that they weren't finding in, in high schools and, and in their family lives. And um, so it was like, it was, you know, that was back then. Back then we were, you know, like all ages in the 90s. You know, obviously I, I switched it to to 21 over in the 20, you know, as I was getting older, I also just felt like, you know, that's where I needed to go to. But but you could see that like, you know, there it was an important thing. You know, life life sometimes can feel hollow for people. And to have have that like, to really meet somebody that you really genuinely care about or a group of people. And so many people's lives have changed from it. So many people have had, like, had children together. And, you know, I mean, so much has happened from people's meetings in the culture and, and whatnot, you know. Not, not all of it is beautiful, you know. I mean, uh, sometimes people can choose to be very hedonistic and get lost in that particular component of it and lose their way. 
but that usually stems from like things inwardly in, in themselves that was there that they they haven't really faced as well so but yeah i mean it's, it it can be a powerful experience and i think just anything that allows people to like have hope and inspiration and you know and movement and dance is an important thing i mean children are very pliable but i think you know over time humans become very calcified by their, their sadness in their life or their fear or anxiety or whatever it is like they stop dancing and feeling music and and you know and i think it's like a really powerful thing to keep music and dance in one's life you know i think it it's really helpful for the body the soul uh, to keep yourself young and and rejuvenated you know what do you think has kept you in it for for so long like like, a, a lot of, like it is a youth movement I feel like at its core like the majority of people who, who go to these events are in their 20s and 30s I and mean for is- me for me it's like a personal mission you know it's just like so many things have been like people that rise up at this moment in time they don't remember the story of what happened then and they don't they don't because they weren't there and there's not a lot of people that are still standing and so, you know, one of the things that I want to do is just I want to make sure the remembrance of how a party is done, where it comes from, you know, the spirit of it is kept alive. And so that that drives me to to keep doing it. You know, sometimes I, you know, I, you know, it personally pains my heart when I see things that uh, go on with the culture where you you see people like, you know, just... You know, it's it's been really hard for me to like watch the industry of music just come in as a wave and take over stuff, uh, and and you know, and people are. I mean, it's pushed. It, it's brought a lot of things. You know, brought a lot of people into the fold and whatever. But it's like, but it's also sad to know that like a lot of people don't even know that kind of that other feeling that existed in in the '90s. Just kind of the this this different type of raw feeling that was like, uh, that existed. So, so one of the, one of the reasons I'd stay in it is just to keep, keep that remembrance alive, you know? So one of the main issues we're talking about at the event we're putting on together at your venue epicenter is substance safety and, and harm reduction tactics. Sure. How do you feel like that's, that's evolved in the last 30 years? Do you think people have, have gotten, better and more mindful of the risks that come with with ingesting a lot of the the drugs associated with this culture or do you think that it's it's uh fallen off in some ways have you seen that change well i mean uh i mean i think you know like dance safe the emergence of dance safe and different things that uh that give people the opportunity to like get more clear information or even test things um on the spot have been helpful I mean, I, I feel like in my own community of people, it just seems like those people that choose to, to play in those type of realms seem to be like far more steeped in their own personal, like, you know, like investigations of, of what it is to, to play safely. So I haven't really, like, I haven't really encountered for myself that happening. I mean, but, you know, at, at events, there still are, you know, uh, some people that were like just really overextend themselves, you know, and I think it's been you, you know like in, just recently doing that party in which you played at, um, I just noticed that there was just a little bit more of that happening for people, and I was just wondering if this like pent up energy of this pandemic and people just like 
like suddenly like pushing themselves further than they really like is wise because you know maybe making up for something because i you know we've done howl for many years and you know there will always be like some issues but it's pretty minor uh there seemed to be a little bit more of that on this one, which is surprising because these howls were much smaller than our traditional house howl events. Because normally, like we do, like you know, eighteen hundred or two thousand people at a howl event, and, and with four stages. So this is like was a far more muted, scaled event, and so it was really surprising that like it's it felt like that there was more problems that we had on some of the days, and I just think I I just kind of was. The curiosity was, was this kind of pandemic, you know, like really like causing people to be like, oh, I'm going to just go for it or something. So um, tell me about like the responsibility you feel as like a promoter. What are the responsibilities you feel like you, you have and what's just like people's choices? Oh, man, I, I have a, I feel a huge sense of responsibility. I mean, it was actually one of the reasons when why I stopped doing 18 under or like 21 under events was just you know because I kept putting out information and uh like like pamphlets I mean this is before dance have even existed and you know just really like trying to cultivate like awareness and education and I kept finding myself having problems in the under 21 crowd and so I after after you know, probably, you know, extensive period where I was just trying to like push more information out there. I just was like, okay, I'm done. I don't, I can't personally take responsibility for this group of people because I don't really know how to get them to really be acting responsibly. So then I just switched to 21 over events, which was hard because, you know, I always felt like I also had a responsibility to, to help guide the younger community towards, um, you know, the, you know, in the older, the, the next stage of it. But I just felt like after, I just didn't want to take it. I just couldn't do it. So then, you know, and once I went, did start doing 21 over events, all those problems just disappeared for me. And, you know, once in a while, people will like drink too much or do, do other things, you know, too much. But it's, it was like far, in, it was very infrequent the moment I switched over to 21 over events. So. Do you feel that one of the reasons that you have been able to stick with promoting this music for so long is that you do stay away from that drug culture personally to some extent or without question i mean it's just like you know life you know life is best when it's like approached with some level of balance you know i think uh and also you know it's like if you are going to explore these type of realms these realms are more potent if you have spaciousness from it you know like you get more from from it than if you're just like like people that are like chronically doing stuff, you know, I always advise people like to really be, you know, if I see, if I see that, like, yeah, I, I advise them to really just like reconsider how they're approaching it, you know, and actually really look inside. Like why, what is that thing that like makes you feel like you need something like this reinvoked all the time? Cause I mean, I think, you know, the power of these things, if you, if you step into it is that you have to then come back and do the work to like get yourself from where you were to where this thing brought you to. If, if that's what you, you know, you enjoyed it, like you got something from it. If like you take an ecstasy and it's brought you like joy and peace and whatever, it's like, 
the going back thinking like, oh, I just need to do that over and over repeatedly is it 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 doesn't work because it has it's a there's a diminishing return. You actually have to go into your life and then make some decisions about like how would your life be better? What are some of the changes that you could do to be a better person? And draw yourself forward, you know? So I think that's, I think if you're going to explore those realms, that's what I would always advise people. It's like, yeah, step into it. See if there's like some wisdom that comes from it. Then from the wisdom, apply it in your real life. And, and, and you know, and that should, there should be a barometer in your life. If your life, you know, if, if you're really doing good work, your life should improve in some ways. Your quality of friendships should Im- improve. The things that, you know, you should feel more inspired and joy-filled, you know. So so that's what I always, like, advise people if, if they're going to descend into that. You know, I think if people are chronically doing that, I think that there's an invitation for people to really look at, like, what is the, what's underneath the hood that's driving the desire to keep doing that, you know. It's like, it's it probably is something that you really need to address. So you were promoting events, I assume, around the time when, when like the the Rave Act, the reducing, what, what's it, what's it like reducing Americans? I can't even write an acronym for it. Yeah, uh, there's been there's been a lot of different, you know. I mean, you know, the first thing that we encountered was the one in England, the Crim- Criminal Justice Act that occurred over there, and then there was, there was, the, I know that there was like the Crack House Act that occurred in like the New Orleans area, and. Uh, there was, I, yeah, there was some other ones that, like, again, were, like, trying to to create more enforcement. I mean, the, the, it's funny because so many of these things all backfired in lots of different ways. Uh, like, it was interesting because the one in England had a very profound consequences because not only did the local promoters kind of largely, like, you know, get around it, but the a lot of DJs and promoters fled the UK and it, and it ended up pollinating, you know, like the wicked crew that emerged out of the early nineties and started doing full moon parties in San Francisco. I think were a consequence of like some of that, that kind of like the bias that was there. And, you know, the, the English promoters that showed up in Thailand, um, I think were, may have been driven by, by that kind of like push away from England and feeling like that there was like this kind of draconian kind of impetus and, you know, the Crack House Act that occurred in, in New Orleans, you know, it was targeting this, these, I think, from my understanding, it was targeting like some of the Zulu parties that were happening at the, at the big theater there. And then that guy sued and like won, won, won in court and now he's funded his Disco Donnie thing. And he's like one of the biggest promoters in the country. So, you know, it's just, it, it's an interesting thing where there's these, things to try you know people are going to dance people are going to figure out how to dance and it's just not you're not really going to stop it it's just going to it's going to mutate in ways to like go around these things and it's just it's just you know but now that it's becoming more and more of an established industry and it's like the music is more accepted and all of these things it's like there's a lot of money behind it you don't see i i don't i don't see like that that the future will have a lot of like you know, I mean, even even the SVOG money was like part of it was like support, like you know, it was a lot of different things, but part of it was the electronic music culture as well. You know, um, so so yeah, I, I think you know they, they try to come up with ways because they see some kind of problem they don't like. Lar- largely, it's because they can't really like get into the mindset of like 
why these people are coming together to dance. They just see like some dark side of it. And, um, and so they make these rules up and then, and then everybody learns the rules and then they just shape shift and then there's, they continue doing what they're doing, you know, so. So you put together a playlist of tracks that have inspired you. The first one is Together and the second one is Follow Me. I understand these two are kind of related. Yeah, um, essentially one of my greatest influences in the early 90s was Doc Martin. And, and it actually very much influenced the, when, when I started DJing in 1996. His influence is very much like steeped in the direction that I play music, which is he would always incorporate positive messages into his sets. And and I, I you know, again, I you'll always find some kind of like positive messages that I'll incorporate into to somewhere in my sets whenever it feels like the right moment. And so those first two tracks have very positive messages to it. is um, Electro Life, You and Me? Yeah, so I think the Electro Life and, uh, and then there's this, the next one after that was that were more a descent into breakbeats. So um, there was a DJ who now uh, named Spun who is uh, now plays house music but back then he played like psychedelic breaks that was just like in the, or in the early 90s just blew everybody's mind especially in Seattle in the Seattle community it was like it became a very big thing they were already like had a connection with breakbeats already in that market so the psychedelic breaks he like brought in was just like just blew my mind John Kelly out of like Moon Tribe in the in the early 90s too was playing a lot of like breaks and so there's something magical about breakbeats too like the rhythm pattern Next track is Randoms. Right, yeah, Randoms and uh, the Experience track are like that was just my like descent and love for acid house music. Uh, yeah, that Experience one by Hard Floor is an absolute yeah, classic. Oh yeah, classic, just like <laughs> floor burner. It's just like so good. And so is the Randoms. That's like a super classic as well, acid house track. And so you know, it's just like it's nice to like give give. Uh, reference to that particular uh, genre of music in that time frame as well. Yeah, love it, Acid House. Next track is Love Rehab. Oh yeah, so Love Rehab and then the next one is, is start- The Gates of Babylon. Is Gates of Babylon, one? kind of just my, my personal like, descent towards more of a uh, deep house which is kind of like more where I'm at with with my life and, and stuff I really like the, the, 
like it's interesting about deep house like sometimes it feels like it's, you know a little bit like on the elevator music side it's like i'm not really into it it's kind of boring but there's so much really vibrant deep house in there so those two tracks represent for me like my my early movings on into into the deep house realms and And then the subsequent two tracks are more like this more like intelligent deep house like to kind of a, like it has a like a techie more refined uh sound in it so Thank you for, for being on the show, but even more deeply, I want to thank you for doing what you've been doing for, for so long. I know you've given a platform to just countless artists and a, a venue for so many people to find themselves in this music. And, you know, I, I, as someone who's been doing it for a much shorter period of time than you, like, I, I know it's a ton of work, it's a ton of stress and liability that you take on. And I just want to say I appreciate you for it and, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks. I mean, I... I'm grateful for it because I do, even though it is it, it is a lot. There's I, I'm not the same person that I was because of it, and uh, so there's I've received tremendous amount from it as well. And I'm grateful to be able to like help in any way I can. Where can people find you and your work? Do you have a SoundCloud. I do have a SoundCloud as for as a DJ. I have a SoundCloud. It's a DJ. D D J underscore Minaj PDX. It's uh, M A N O J PDX. Um, so that is one way you can connect with me um, via SoundCloud. If you're wanting to connect to the events, just send me a message on SoundCloud, and I can figure out a way to connect you. It's funny that I don't have a more formal way of <laughs> doing this, but but I've been doing it long enough. Generally, people know how to get connect with what I do, so. And if they want to hear more about Epicenter events and what you're doing there, what's the best spot for that? Yeah, uh, uh, we have a, a fan page on Facebook called Epicenter PDX. And that's probably the best way to be able to reach us. Um, yeah. And thank you so much. It's been, it's been fun. So, you know, it's nice to share the story and the adventure. Um, it's, been, it's been, for me personally, a very life-changing one. Well, it really comes through. And yeah, thank you again for taking the time to, to tell it. I, I found it inspiring for, for me anyway. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rhythm Nation. For a playlist of songs in today's episode and more information on our organization and organizing efforts, 
visit our website at rhythmnation.us or follow us on social media at rhythmnationpdx. Thanks. See you next time.